Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Kaylin McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first Mark Dunley speaks with Albany County Legislator Mert Simpson about the slow transition to green energy at the New York State Plaza Complex. Then we, sp- we speak with Linda LaTondra of Our Lodge Foundation about the upcoming event, Black and Banned, Refusing to Let Our History Be Whitewashed. Later on, Marsha Lazarus speaks with Rabbi Deborah Gordon about her 27 years as rabbi for the Reformed Synagogue in Troy, New York. After that, we get our weekly dose of laughs and welcome comedian Will Hughes. And finally, Tom Francis spotlights the poetry of Kathleen Ann Smith, who took part in the 2023 Poetic License Albany exhibit. All that and more, but first, here are your headlines. Channel 13 reports that Stewart's Shops is helping RPI celebrate its 200th anniversary with Quantum Freeze ice cream due to hit stores February 5th. It's named after RPI's new IBM Quantum System 1 computer. Quantum Freeze features a tart cherry swirl and red and blue pop rocks in vanilla ice cream. Advocates and lawmakers gathered at the New York State Capitol on Monday to rally for free school meals for every student in the state, an issue that anti-hunger advocates have been pushing in New York State for at least three decades. Expanding federal guidelines require that at least 25 of school students need to be eligible for free or reduced meals in order for the school to provide free meals to everyone. While last year the program was expanded to provide meals to more than 300 and 47,000 students, gaps in coverage means an additional, an additional more than 300,000 students aren't eligible. The Times Union reports that foster care agencies are warning that New York may need to help self-settlements in hundreds of Child Victim Act lawsuits levied against the child welfare system, or to be prepared for a potential collapse of the system that they say would threaten the state's statutory responsibility to care for vulnerable children. In 2019, the state temporarily suspended the normal statute of limitations for child survivors of sexual assault to sue their alleged abusers. Foster care agencies have been named as defendants in 15% of the cases. Schenectady County Jail has started a program to train groups of inmates with skills for, for potential careers as health care professionals. The Daily Gazette family of newspapers has taken over the operations of two daily papers in the region. Starting this week, the Gazette now operates the Register Star in Columbia County and the Daily Mail in Greene County. And that's it for your headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. Climate justice advocates were stunned today to hear that the Hochul administration planned to take 10 years to achieve only a 50% reduction in fossil fuels at the State Plaza Complex. Mark Dunley sat down with Albany County Legislator Mert Simpson, co-chair of SHARE, to get more of what's going on at the state capitol. We're talking with Mert Simpson, who is one of the co-chairs of SHARE, the Sheridan Hollow Alliance for 
uh, renewable energy. Um, they were the group that helped stop the Governor Cuomo's plan to put uh, some new frac gas turbines into the uh, steam plant in Sheridan Hollow, an environmental justice community. And since then, uh, they've been working to convert the state capital complex to 100% renewable energy and to finally shut down this steam plant that actually has been polluting the neighborhood for over a century. So today, the uh, state office of general services was testifying the state budget. So, Mur, what 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 news came out of this hearing today? Well, it's interesting. We had an impromptu meeting. Uh, you know, we got a notice around 3.05 yesterday from Steve Ramsey from the New York Power Authority for a 4.30 conference. And uh, we had a conference with uh, representatives from the New York Power Authority with representatives from the Officer General Service listening in. And basically, they were just telling us that, you know, the Rambo study that we were waiting to hear from is not yet completed. Uh, but that they study, were gonna... The Rambo study was a study they were going to do for the Empire State Plaza. It's supposed to take like a year and a half. It's now been about two years. Is that yeah. the study? Okay. So we discovered then that they were going to have hearings, uh, that, that the commissioner was going to, of OGS was going to participate in the uh, economic development uh, joint uh, legislative uh, New York State hearings today. So the commissioner, uh, Jeanette M. Uh, Moy, was one of the earlier participants. And as I listened, I was shocked to hear that in contradistinction to the Renewable Capital Act proposed by Sheridan Hollow, uh, which you know called for decarbonization of the Empire State Plaza and uh, associated buildings, 100% uh, uh, renewable energy within a three-year period. The, the testimony of the commissioner today was that uh, they were going to recommend a 50% decrease in uh, uh, decarbon uh, in carbon emissions over a 10-year period, uh, which I was shocked to hear because we are perilously close to the tipping point now. And a 10-year arc, even if you assume the best case, you know, infrastructure development uh, would, uh, you know, put us afoul of the, you know, CLCPA uh, guidelines. So based on our history with the New York Power Authority and OGS, we feel very strongly that now we need to uh, review uh, the draft of the Rambo study, which again is, you know, a, a study on how to decarbonize, uh, decarbonize the uh, Empire State Plaza, uh, that we be able to review their draft proposal before it's finalized in the same way that our science committee led by uh, Key Shu and David Musser were able to use the data that was proposed for the initial uh, Sheridan Avenue steam plant to implement two uh, frac gas turbines. We were able to analyze their data and show that their assumptions uh, were false. And so strong was our analysis that we didn't get a written response, but they repurposed the initial $88 million to over $110 million to make, you know, uh, energy improvements and scuttled the plan for the frac gas turbines. We feel strongly, uh, we used to have a, a saying when I was at civil service that there's never time to do it right, but always time to do it over. We feel that with our experts, with JA uh, and other experts that we were able to work with uh, the state who, who are developers of existing geothermal projects, 
that we probably have greater expertise or certainly can augment any expertise that the Rambo study can produce. And we are, you know, really disheartened by the idea that even in a best case, a 10-year arc is just not going to be useful for the existential threat we face now. Let me ask a couple of um, questions and many clarifying points. So when you say that they repurposed the money, you actually mean the state legislature, um, you know, repurposed the, the money and, and built an I guess that would be, yeah, I guess that would be a more accurate depiction, yes. Um, so since the state legislature told NIPA, hey, you guys are headed in the wrong direction, we we support what this community group is saying, have you asked over the last couple of years for NIPA and OGS to consult with you on this study or to share, you know, what they were thinking about and how the response has been? Yeah, we've been saying for a long time that we were anxious to meet. Uh, we were were told that the expectation of the Rambo study would be completed, you know, I guess sometime last year, uh, only to find out that they're not finished yet. Um, but what the problem is, we don't really know what the scope or the content of their study actually is. But not knowing that, again, as I say, the the parameters of fifty percent you know, renewable versus 100% and a 10-year timeline versus a three-year timeline is awfully uh, problematic for us. Well, just taking a wild guess that if they're not going to reduce the fossil fuel emissions by 50% in 10 years, um, one can take a wild guess that they're not immediately converting uh, to geothermal or even talking about geothermal. And I, I think we may have mentioned that, uh, you know, the state of Michigan just did this and converted their state capital to geothermal energy. And from the start of their planning process to the actual finish of the project was a grand total of 18 months. And they were able to uh, actually reduce their annual energy bills by 25%. Why is it so impossible for New York to work on a timeline that might actually help save life on the planet? Well, that's the the, the multimillion-dollar question that we have. It's, cert, it's certainly not an adequate response to the level of, 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 of you know, damage that we're experiencing right now. I mean, right now, so far, the, the last winter, this winter, has been seriously, you know, a low amount of snow. This is—last year was the hottest year in recorded history. This year, no doubt, will be hotter than last year. And again, you know, if we're not past the tipping point now, we're perilously close to it. So bottom line is that the one step forward, three steps back is not going to get us where we need to go. And, you know, putting a, a remote solar array in Oneida County is not going to deal with the devastation uh, in the capital uh, that's created by the Sheridan Hollow steam plant that's pumping in frack gas from Pennsylvania uh, every day and poisoning people in the direct proximity to it. So uh, I think, again, in the same way we initially encountered the state and they said that none of the uh, energy alternatives were viable, we were able to get them to the point of repurposing certain parts of it. We feel that uh, we can probably point out some of the misconceptions they have about what's actually practicable and, and also point out the, the, the downside of not acting you know, immediately. 
you mentioned particularly the health impact in the Sheridan Hollow neighborhood. This is the neighborhood, as you pointed out, for more than a century. They have burned oil there. They have burned gas there. They have burned garbage there. But they also burned coal at a certain point. Um, but if you look at the cancer maps, state's own data, you know, one of the three places in Albany County has a really uh, high incidence of cancer is right around that, that particular steam plant. Um, and well, they talk I mean, so much about environmental justice. Here they've been polluted in environmental justice for a century. And they're saying, oh, it'll take 10 years and we get a 50% reduction. And of course, they're expecting this private sector to move in you know, faster. I mean, what's going on here? Well, again, the, the human impact has been devastating. You know, uh, there, again, we've uh, dis discovered several families have had, you know, members uh, uh, up to four members with stage four cancer. The Garland family recently, uh, last year, late last year, just uh, lost Ben Garland. Uh, Mrs. Garland died earlier that year. Lasone Garland, uh, one of the daughters, died. A previous daughter had died. And uh, uh, Rodney uh, uh, Garland has stage four cancer himself. So you're talking about one family with five people who have you know, four of which have died from stage four cancer, one who, who has it. Uh, my wife's sister, uh, her uh, brother-in-law, her aunt uh, died from cancer. I myself am being looked at right now for proteins that could lead to uh, the prelude to multiple myeloma. And I live about five blocks from the plant. So, and, and what's worse is that there's new construction right now, almost adjacent to the plant on Orange Street, Merit share. I imagine this fight is 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 still going to heat up even more. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Thank you very much. We have a target now. <laughs> and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And that was Mark Dunley from the from the state capitol speaking with Mert Simpson. And uh, I believe we'll hear more from him from uh, his talk with Taina later this week. Frederick Allen's Elks Lodge, 609 and Mary A. Carpenter Temple, the two oldest black civic organizations in Saratoga Springs, New York, along with our lodge foundations, are utilizing Black History Month to spotlight banned books, either penned by black authors or illuminating racism and black American history. To tell us more... We're now joined by Linda LaTondra, Board of Directors of Our Lodge Foundation. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So to begin, can you introduce yourself and our Lodge Foundation? Well, I'm, I'm uh, Linda Latender in Saratoga Springs, New York, and um, I do a lot of peace and social justice work. Um, I'm a Quaker, and that's my avocation. Um, and as part of looking at the whole issue of Black Lives Matter as a white person, what you know, what am I going to do with that? I can put a sign on my front lawn and and uh, march in the streets. Um, but, you know, what do you actually do to improve things? Um, so a group of us got together and put together a little free library that is we work with the, the Frederick Allen Lodge and our Lodge Foundation. And the library, the little free library, is all about black culture and black history. And uh, it's a way of promoting and protecting uh, black culture and history. And it, it's a way of saying... Not only do black lives matter, but black lives have enormously enriched our culture. And so that's that's our project to do that. Well, 
you have an event coming up together with the <laughs> Frederick Allen Elks Lodge in Mary A. Carpenter. Carpen, Carpenter Temple, our Lodge Foundation, is putting on the event Black and Band, refusing to let go, let our history be whitewashed on Saturday, February 4th. Sunday. Well, that is, yes, that is correct. And what will take it, place at this, uh, at this event? People are, have been invited to come and, and, and read, to, to choose a choose a passage from a book by a black author that has been banned, or perhaps a book by a white author that was banned because it was talking about racism. For example, that would be a book like Black Like Me or Huckleberry Finn. Um, and so people are going to read about read a passage in the book and then talk about why there, there, there's the, the public reason of why a book was banned, but then there's the real reason. And so we're asking people to dig a little deeper and look at the real reason this book was banned. So people will have we we've invited folks, and then people can also come with a with a passage and read it and talk about it, and we'll have a, a community discussion. Mm. Just thinking, uh, it's been a while since I've been in the school system. Uh, are how many books have been banned around this area, and is it um, one might assume that upstate New York is more liberal? Is that at all true, or is are is there just a long list of? books that we grew up with that uh, are no longer being utilized in schools. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't have kids, so I'm not, I'm not connected with, with the schools. So I really, I really can't speak to that. Um, but I can say that here in upstate New York, we, we tend to be more progressive. And you don't really hear about book bannings or um, book challenges so much in this area. But um, we've, we've decided that we want to highlight the dangers of book banning, number one, and the book banners throughout history, the book banners have never been on the right side of history. So so this is partly to highlight black culture and history, but also partly to talk about the whole issue of race and the whole, whole question of how do we deal with that um, and, and how black history really gets whitewashed. And it, it's not happening so much here, but this is a way to to, to prevent that. What are some black authors that you think are a must-know for listeners? Well, I I think uh, uh, Octavia Butler would be one. Everybody knows Alice Walker and Toni Morris, and then they should. Everybody knows those folks. Um, but there's a whole what's 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 a burgeoning um, genre in in black writing right now is um, science fiction. And what that does is that it, it, it allows people of color to talk about what it means to be human. Who gets to define what it means to be human? And how does that play out? And, and how does that work, especially after slavery and, and the lynching times? What does that all look like? And, and, and really, literature connects us with our humanity and our common and connected humanity. And racism really is about breaking that connection to have power over someone versus power with. So I would say Octavia Butler would be mm, a good good yeah. person to, to read. Um, there are some really great black authors that right now, um, there's one, Leah Motley, uh, called Night Crawling. Um, that's that's an Oprah's Book Club recommendation. She's usually pretty good with her recommendation. So I would say that um, 
The Bird Has My Wings by Jarvis J. Masters. Again, another Oprah selection. And like I said, she does. She, I, I got to give her credit. She really does um, um, a good job of picking that up. Of Finding Me by Viola Davis, the actress who I just think is absolutely phenomenal, probably one of the best actresses of uh, of our of our generation. So that's oh, those are, are the great. kind of books I would look at. Mm. Yes. Um, um, and, and oh. I can't. Um, oh, I know. Ta, and I never say his name right. Ta Neshi Kote. Tanahasi Coates. Yeah. Thank you very much. That person would would also be another and. My, my one of my favorites again is Zora Neale Hurston, mm. um, and my favorite book by her is Their Eyes Were Watching God, mm-hmm. which which was a banned book by the way, and uh, <laughs> uh, banned because I think one of the fruit trees was described, and it sort of sounded like she was describing women's genitalia, so the book got banned. But personally, I mm. think they were afraid of a strong black woman writing a book, but that's just my my opinion. So, oh, that is interesting. Uh, so uh, before we had a phone call before this interview and you were talking about the free library that is uh i believe outside of of the lodge um yes. and that seems like the ultimate uh a con- of of uh free access to information of course language is can be a barrier to some people um what are some of the best ways to self educate well, you know, coming to some of the events at the Frederick Allen Lodge and, and learning something about black culture and the people of color in your community, that that has been an, an eye-opener for me. To, I'm an associate member, um, and I joined as a way to help promote and protect the black culture in Saratoga Springs and in the history of it. So I would say getting out and go to a black church and um, and see how they worship and what, what their theology is. Those are a couple of ways that I would do that. You can always, the internet has some wonderful ways of looking up black authors, black science fiction authors, black history. Uh, our little free library has, and I have to say, it gets a lot of foot traffic. And we, we actually have trouble keeping it stocked. But we have things. We have a gamut of books. Everything from black um, black history and black theology. We have we get CDs um, for rock and rock and roll is is a gift from the black culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so there we have music. We have DVDs, and um, as I said, chill, we also we have adults and children's books as well. So and and I'm I'm very pleased to say we we do have trouble keeping it stocked because when we put things in there, they disappear quickly, and that's a good thing. That is. At like at the event, will there be uh, books available for people to read, and and what else is taking uh, at uh, happening at the event? Well, it, it'll be. People who have agreed to read, Warren Dart will be there reading. Warren Dart is one of, his father was one of the Tuskegee Airmen, and he lived in our community, yes. Very interesting man. So he is going to be one of the readers. We're asking people to bring books with them, but we're going to have a few books there in case somebody comes and just, you know, spirit moves them and they feel like, hey, I remember this book and I want to read this piece from this book. So so some of it will be um, um, spontaneous as well. And, and people, as I said, will bring books along, bring a book to and read a passage out of it. And for and right now, the books that are being banned, 40% of the books that are being banned and challenged are written by black authors or they deal with racism. Mm. That's 
that's pretty significant. So, so our education system needs some work. Um, what is, if there's one thing that you'd like to see in our school system, what comes to mind? Well, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't have kids, so I'm, I'm not connected with the school system, but I, but I can say teach black history and, and, and teach the ugly parts of it. There, there are some really beautiful parts of it. Everybody knows um, Booker T. Washington and Peanut Butter. People don't know about Gladys West, and she's a, a black scientist, and you have a GPS because of her. Um, mm-hmm. So I would say you, know, you teach the good stuff. You teach about rock and roll and, and fried chicken. Um, two mainstays of our culture, but but you teach about the Jim Crow laws, and you teach about what happened after slavery, um, and and the ways that the laws that were passed to keep the people enslaved. For example, if you were the vagrancy laws came into to uh, effect then, so that if you were caught with uh, less than a two dollars in your pocket, you were a vagrant. They could put you in jail and make you work for free. Um, and, and talk about the slave labor that happens now. If you're eating Kellogg's cornflakes, you're probably eating stuff that was made with prison labor. Most of whom, most of the people in prison are black because of the system we have that, that targets them. So wonderful talking with you today. We have about 30 seconds left. Um, can you just remind us of the event details and where to get more info and anything else you'd like to say that was left unsaid? The, the event is at the Frederick Allen Lodge on Beekman Street in Saratoga Springs, New York. It's from 2 to 4 in the afternoon. Frederick Allen Lodge does have a Facebook page, so you could look it up on their, on their Facebook page. Um, we're going to have coffee, tea, and some, some really good cookies. I'll have my brownies there. I make great brownies, so mm-hmm. come for that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and and we, we are really trying to make a comfortable community event. And it's all happening on Sunday, February 4th. Yes, sir. We'd be happy to have you there. Thank you so much, Linda LaTondra. And thank you to H. Bosch Jr. for supporting this. And Linda, I do hope that we'll speak again. I hope so. I think we have some good things to talk about. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Kaylin McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. On W-O-O-C-L-P 105.3 FM Troy, W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you can hear, you can support this program by sharing our content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Rabbi Deborah Gordon will be celebrating her 27th year as rabbi for the Reform Synagogue in Troy, New York. Bereth Shalom, she talks about what's enticed her into becoming a rabbi, the challenges of being an out lesbian, and what enables her to embrace differences. So, Rabbi, you are affectionately known in the community as Reb Deb. What's fun about Reb Deb is that it rhymes, and it's informal, but it preserves a tiny bit of a title. So it's fun, it's accessible. What most people don't know is it's also a gender-bending pun. Because Reb, in Yiddish, is not short for Rabbi. It means Mr. So I like that part of it, too. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm sitting with Rabbi Deborah Gordon. 
Rabbi Gordon is almost celebrating her 27th anniversary as rabbi for the Reform Synagogue Berit Shalom in Troy, New York. Reb Deb, what was it about becoming a rabbi that enticed you? And is the job as you envisioned it? I don't know what I envisioned. I knew that rabbis spoke and cantors sang, and I had things to say. And as a rabbi, I could sing. So that was that was my choice between those two. But when I was in, I don't know, junior high, probably, at Jewish summer camp, I remember people saying to me, are you going to be a rabbi when you grow up? What's amazing about that is that probably none of us had ever met or even heard of a female rabbi at the time. Because besides Regina Jonas, who was ordained in Germany uh, in the 1930s and didn't survive the war, the first woman who was ordained as a rabbi was ordained in 1972. So I'm 61. When I was, when I was in middle school, there were very few female rabbis. And it was because I just had a little more interest in and knowledge of the Jewish parts of Jewish summer camp. Um, I have a rabbi grandfather. I grew up listening to my father, Alava Sholem, who was a journalism professor, serve as High Holy Day cantor, Chazan, for many years. So I grew up immersed in Jewish music and Jewish liturgy. But I really didn't know what rabbis did. I was um, invited to visit the Reform Rabbinical School in Cincinnati by one of the student rabbis in Bloomington, Indiana. And I got there and I just felt like, these are the people I wanna be. I still didn't really know what rabbis did. All I knew was the public part, but there was a feeling there that, that pulled me in. After high school, people probably would have guessed that I would have been a computer programmer. Uh, but this is the only thing that I really figured out, that this is what I want to be when I grow up. So, Reb Deb, while your work is clearly tied to your Jewish identity, you are clearly a person who's very comfortable with diversity. For one, you and your wife, Judy, have welcomed into your home four children from diverse backgrounds, differing abilities. We adopted four children through foster care. Three are black, one is white, Judy and I are white. We used to joke that the only way we could have made life more difficult for them was by speaking Spanish at home because we were living out in Brunswick, so a pretty white area. We were raising goats, lesbian moms, transracial family, and Jewish. Your comfort with diversity, Reb Deb, is this a quality that you bring from your upbringing or were you, or are you unique within your family in that regard? Oh, that's a great question. No, I think that I am very much in line with my family in that regard. Um, I remember some specifics, you know, mom being on the Human Rights Commission in Evanston, Illinois, when I was in you know, grade school or middle, middle school. Um, I really didn't realize this until recently, um, but from my family, I got an incredible sense of justice and the importance of ethical behavior. And justice doesn't 
mean that you treat everybody the same. You try and understand what people need so that they get what they need. I remember when I was in eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade, I entered the Martin Luther King essay contest at school. And the title for the year was, was How Can We Save His Dream? And what I wrote about was how equal does not mean the same, that equality means recognizing difference. And that really, I think, underlies my approach to people, that understanding where someone is coming from, honoring the fact that what people say and think makes sense to them, even if it doesn't make sense to me, trying to understand that. Um, those are things I think that I was raised with. I think the ability to see multiple perspectives is somewhat genetic. Um, you know, sometimes it's gotten me into trouble because I can empathize so far with a perspective that's different from mine that sometimes I fail to like properly lift up the perspective that that I might hold. I think being lesbian has something to do with it too, though. I used to say that if I weren't lesbian, I could have just sort of disappeared into middle America, but it was impossible. It was impossible not to feel different, not to be different, not to have to struggle with acceptance back in the day as a lesbian. And so that was one of the things, I mean, being Jewish, you're already different pretty much anywhere in the United States, maybe New York City, but I grew up in the Midwest. It's not that there weren't Jews around, but they, we were nowhere near a majority. So that and being lesbian and probably being female as well. Um, and, you know, being highly verbal and a bookworm and just always the odd weird kid out. I think that life experience encouraged me to reach out to other people, to recognize in other people um, who were different from the mainstream, an experience that matched mine in some way. I think it's a combination of nature and nurture. Mm, mm, very interesting. I'm curious, you know, when you were applying for positions to be a rabbi, you know, when you were out of school, just ordained, was being a lesbian a barrier? It was a potential barrier. It was a potential barrier to my getting into rabbinical school. Um, if I hadn't been lesbian or if the conservative rabbinical school had been accepting out queer people, I probably would have been a conservative rabbi. Uh, but that wasn't an option for me because I could not go into rabbinical school closeted. And I would have had to be so deeply closeted at JTS at that time that I couldn't breathe. So it was a, it was a calculated risk in my interview in Cincinnati. I knew that an out queer person had been, had been admitted through the reform, to the reform rabbinical school through the New York campus and through the LA campus but not through the Cincinnati campus. When I interviewed, however, I made sure to tell the interview committee that I was lesbian because I needed to be able to bring my full self. You know, it's expected that rabbis will be part of a family. And my partner was a woman. So what was I going to do? You know, come down off the bima and, and pretend that she wasn't my partner, my wife, 
I don't know when the whole congregation knew, but I have a distinct memory of someone who may have been on the interview committee. I can't remember. Uh, but I remember him saying, you know, I'm one of those people who might not be comfortable if you came down off the bima and, and kissed your wife. But I, I want you to know that I absolutely think that you have a right to do it. And that's, you know, that's Baruch Shalom for you. There, there's mm. an openness there wow. that predated me. And it was a risk, risk that paid off almost 27 years later. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> but it was a risk that had to be taken. I couldn't come in closeted. One year for uh, Shavuot, the holiday that celebrates giving the Torah, we had a, uh, a program of speed dating with God. And you talk to the other person for like five minutes, like speed dating, but you're answering questions about what you're looking for in God. And, and one of the questions was, what is the one characteristic that you cannot do without in God? And I had no idea what was going to come out of my mouth. And the word that came out of my mouth was justice. If God's not about justice, I don't have any use for God. And that told me that that's deep in my core, right? You know, in Jewish tradition says, teaches that we're all created B'Tselem Elohim in God's image, every human being. And there's a Jewish human rights organization that's name is B'Tselem. And it, the, its logo includes not only the letters and the vowels, but also the trope mark, the, the little curve that you would find under that word in Genesis, which indicates how to sing it, which tells you that they are they are intentionally referring us back to the story of all human beings being created in God's image. That is the first part of the interview with Rabbi Deborah Gordon by Marsha Lazarus. And the second part will be coming soon. Uh, today on our weekly segment featuring local comedians, we welcome on Will Hughes. He is a head writer of the sketch group criminal ally or crime ally he performs for the D&D improv group quest bells he's also a regular at the comedy works in saratoga he also has an event coming up where he'll be hosting love buzz a relationship knowledge game show at mobco impro theater on february 16th uh and he hosts the monthly show there as well so welcome on will hughes oh thanks for having me on i think uh, i'm gonna do my best to uh follow the uh being told about the totality of universal equality under God, <laughs> too. <laughs> Talking about, like, making with some yucks at an improv theater in Schenectady. Sure. Sure, bring it on. So what's that like for you? Like, what is, what is, okay, you t just told me you've been, you're now 13 years as a comedian? Yeah, I started when I was 26 years old. Uh, so, yeah, uh, big four coming different? up. Like, can you think of that first year? What was that like for you? Oh, uh, I still had hope. Back then, I'd say that's the biggest difference. Uh, go to any open mic and you are going to see at least one or two uh, folks who they don't want to admit it out loud. But in their heart of hearts, they actually do think that that limo can come around the corner with some fat guy with a cigar that just says, you got it, kid. Here's your Netflix special. Even back then, like it, we, everyone knows cognitively that's impossible. But once you decide to start doing it. It's, oh, that was impossible before you did it. Uh, you know, everybody says, oh, I wish I could do comedy. Then you do it. 
And then there's, wow, anything is possible. Who knows? I might blow up. I might become this amazing thing. And then reality happens. Um, you know, either you don't get lucky or maybe it turns out you did need to put more work into it than you thought. And now it's great, though, because I'm at a point where I have no expectations for myself in the future. So this can just be art. <laughs> What's your style like? What If I go to one of your performances, what can I expect? Uh, you can expect my favorite thing that I've gotten into doing now is rather than roasting people, I uh, say something nice about everybody in the audience. I find that it's a very cheap and quick way to get people on my side. But it's also, I do want them on my side. Like, how much uphill fighting do I want to do? I do that. Um, and that's a really essential thing because I spend a lot of time talking about death or industrial accidents. So it's good to have some people who are already my friends there. In industrial accidents? Oh, yeah. Before, like, uh, this might be a surprise, to, but uh, I have a day job. <laughs> A, right now I'm in sales, but before that I spent a lot of time either uh, warehouses, chemical plants, basically cancer factories until I was able to get out of there. All right. And that's informed your comedy. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd say um, I used to work in a chemical plant in Glens Falls where I, um, where I watched a rat that was so thoroughly poisoned and so thoroughly just harmed neurologically by all the ambient chemicals in there that I was also breathing, um, that it just bashed its head into the side of a cement wall. I um, did also... So is that your comedy bit, talking about the rat? You know, the rats made it in there, come out of there. I have to actually go back and edit it because that uh, chemical plant does love to sue people when they point out Ooh. that it is a... It's a chemical plant inside of a residential neighborhood. They just don't want to talk about that. If you've ever been to Glens Falls, New York, and you see somebody with advanced silver argyria just walking around, like they have, like their skin has been dyed gray, um, that's what that is because that place boils, it just dumps it dumps silver into nitric acid that works its way into people's bodies. So you can just become a zombie by just doing what you're told literally at work, and you literally can become somebody who's permanently harmed and looks like the walking dead. So I only worked there for a year, though. All right. All right. So I see you have an upcoming show. So tell us a little bit more about the uh, upcoming show, yeah, Love Buzz. Yeah, Love Buzz. Uh, yeah, uh, my friend Aiden's uh, helping, is producing that with uh, his group, um, Dojo Beyond Time and Space. I work with uh, them a lot. That's also who I work with for the Quest Buds thing. Um, and, yeah, we want to do something fun. We definitely want to do... Um, a nice uh, Valentine's Day thing. Mopco Improv Theater likes us, um, and so we wanted to do something that uh, would have been like nice and Valentine's Day appropriate. I've done Valentine's Day shows before; they tend to do well. And at first, the idea came around of like, oh, what if we have like like a dating game style show? Um, but one of the things that happened is that we like the dating games from like the seventies mm -hmm. or something. And we looked at all of our friend group and like, first of all, like this format doesn't work without prescribed heterosexuality. <laughs> <laughs> like mm -hmm. it doesn't, it like, like that it doesn't work if unless mo uh, monogamy is also the standard. And it's also just weird to have a human being be a prize, even if it's just for fun. So what we did instead was we made it a buzz-in show 
where um, uh, the host, which is uh, it's myself and uh, Kaylee Strafford. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had here? Yep, and Aiden has been too. Yeah, yeah. And what we're going to do is it's going to be just a rapid-fire buzz-in show with questions that objectively you would want your partner to know the answer to those questions. All right. Like objective, like there's going to be a section, like I'm still writing it, but uh, there's going to be a section in which some of your answers have to be given in the form of an I feel statement. Uh, we're going to have, um, and anything that is subjective, we are going to play it out like it is objective from our judges, which are going to be, uh, four wine drunk women on beanbag chairs who are also on the show. So if there's anything that's disputed, that's who actually makes the decision. Okay. (laughs) I could see this working. Yeah. Yeah. And how are you going to get the audience to participate? Are you going to have members come up on stage? They're just going to sit there and like it. That's what's going to happen. Uh, no, we're going (laughs) to. Oh, uh, we're gonna play around with them. Uh, we might have some uh, audience participation. It's uh, th- you got to be careful with audience participation though, because some people it's you know it's like getting a ride in an Uber. Sometimes you might want to chit chat around. Other times it might be I'm just gonna sit here and enjoy me not having to talk at all. Right. Like make with the laughs, funny man. Uh, right. So. Right. Yeah, usually, but I have found in that room, uh, I run a comedy show there uh, third Friday every month. That's taken this spot. And I don't know what it is about the space, but I have never had anyone be shy of as an audience member there. I have had people just go down their neurodivergent biography, autobiographies, just like I could ask any question. Like, hey, anybody ever afraid of bees? And someone will have zero problem talking about the finer points of their bee allergy or apiary or whatever they read on Wikipedia that day. <laughs> it's a fun room it really is people have like they feel they can do that so remind us of the date when this is happening february 16th uh that's february 16th at 8 p.m at the mopco improv theater in schenectady all right and do we have a minute do we have another question yeah okay so uh we did uh i think recently had this on our story but the D improv group what does that look like okay what that looks like is um it does look like a D&D game come to life, but in the most chaotic way possible that you would recognize if you've played D&D. Either of you guys roll 20s? No. Okay, so think less Lord of the Rings and more neurodivergent chaos goblins rolling D20s, but they have magic now. Brilliant. Yeah, doing everything that they would care to do. Like, it's your first session of D&D, someone is going to, like try to rob the magic item store. Somebody is going to try to seduce the monster rather than fight. And that pretty much happens here. We've got three people that are playing their player characters. Uh, and I'm one of the folks that just plays literally everything else. Uh, so I get to, uh, much like real life, I am conducting myself as an NPC. So people want to find more information about you and more information about the event. Where can they find that? Uh, information about the event is, um, well, it's uh, the uh, Dojo Beyond Time and Space. Their Instagram page is a great spot for that, uh, for information on that. I'm Facebookable. I'm a guy named William Hughes, and we're in the area. So, like, I might know you personally. It's, 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 the, it's the greater Smalbany area. Just, you can find me on that. I'm, ter- I'm very old and bad at social media. It is Smalbany. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Will Hughes. Oh, thank you very much. And we close out the show with a poetry spotlight where Tom Francis this week highlights Kathleen Ann Smith. 
Kathleen Ann Smith is a local writer and editor who has read her poems at many of the area's open mic venues. Her book of poems, Let the Stones Grow Soft, was published in 2023 by the Troy Bookmakers. Let the Stones Grow Soft explores the journey from the wilderness of childhood through the wounds and wonders of love, family, and more. Kathleen Ann Smith writes with a clear, lyrical voice that brings beauty and insight to troubled times. Kathleen was one of the poets who took the stage at the Poetic License Albany Reading and Open Mic at the Honest Wade Food Co-op on December 5th, 2023. That night, Kathleen read, To Create a Summer It Takes, that inspired the painting Beach Cottage Summer by Maureen Kelly. She also read, Why I Write About My Mother. Both of those poems are in her book. But before we hear from Kathleen, Host Dan Wilcox invokes the muse with a poem by Noah Kusich, whose poems were in the exhibit, but he had passed away earlier in the year. And at my open mic that I do at the Social Justice Center, I like to invoke the muse. And that is some gone poet who couldn't be here with us. And tonight, sadly, uh, one of the one of those type poets who can't be with us any longer is Noah Kusich, who has two poems and there are two actual works of art in right in the gallery. Actually, just step right around the corner here. Uh, and he submitted his two poems to the uh, call for submissions back in March, and then in April he died very suddenly. Very young fellow, yeah. Apparently. Uh, apparently from a rare form of epilepsy that is very severe and is often fatal. Uh, so he so he had two poems, and he was a poet who had been in the Albany poetry scene for a number of years, read at open mics. I hadn't seen him at the open mics in recent years. Uh, and a nice fellow, you know. Everybody knew him. That was one of the things you would say about him. So I w- thought I would do right now is to read one of his poems, uh, as him as the muse. Your photos a year ago this week by Noah Kusich. Can you believe they brought that Ferris wheel in on a bed of a truck? Do you notice how teacups and elephants seem to hover between the lips of kids? Can you picture the pitch of the hill you've been over in the season since three pigs raced in a, ri- in a ring? Your money was on the clown-wigged one. Your baby was all bones in on the sow in the spacesuit. There she is, kicking up moon dust round the final turn when out of the rear comes the general, chubby, blur, and ammo belt and camouflage. The year kind of went like that. What happened to the pearl-gray shirt you're wearing here? The curl behind her tilted ear. It's either hair or smoke. So Noah Kusich. Our next reader is Kathy Smith. She has a book out that came out this year. uh, And she is going to be a featured poet in February at the Social Justice Center, February 15th. Yeah, so we'll get a, I see she has the book. So you'll get a sample of of her poetry. And then if you, if you like it, then you should come to the uh, open mic at the Social Justice Center, and uh, and if you don't like it, you should come anyways and read in the open mic and show her how you think a poem should be written. But 
Please welcome Kathleen Smith. Thanks, Dan. I, I almost forgot one of the best things. I get anxious at uh, um, open mics, but now what happens is I'm so enamored by everybody else's poetry, I just go home and I'm inspired, and I've decided now I like open mics, even if I myself have to do stuff. <laughs> so the first, the first poem I'll read, um, it was actually a challenge that my... Um, uh, my writing group did. Uh, we were kind of limping around, finding different themes and prompts. And this was something, we were supposed to write something after Emily Dickinson. And this is the, the poem that I wrote. Um, to create a summer it takes. To create a summer it takes a porch and one hydrangea. Screened porch, blue hydrangea, and memory. Memory alone will do if hydrangeas are few. Kitchen table, five tomatoes, women singing over boiling water and memory. And if memory is fading, four tomatoes will do. Tomatoes, one blue hydrangea, an ocean breeze that lifts the women's song like memory through open windows to the children on the porch. Figs, tomatoes, garlic cheese, hydrangeas and grand bouquets, men with wine and mandolins who sing across the kitchen table to sunburned wives. To create a summer, it takes a song and waves, a certain song, blue waves, and what remains of memory. And I tend to write longer poems. They're stories, but they, they take, take longer. So I'll just read one more, because this one kind of goes on and on. This is about writing about my mother, who's been, well, she features in some of the poems in the front of the book. It wasn't always, you know, sunshine and roses and happy Christmas. <laughs> but here we are, why I write about my mother. Gray skies, late December afternoon. In a nursing home day room, pale patients with dementia, some aggressive, some lost, run into walls and furniture and other people with their wheelchairs. Staff from gentler, warmer countries rule the, gro glowing, rule the growing gloom. Everyone wants their dinner. Except my mother, who's no longer mute, but delighted that we've met right here in the middle of her favorite store, and even more delighted when I tell her everything's already paid for, and she can have whatever catches her eye. There are her long-gone brothers. Her mother waves her apron from an escalator, and a busy Jesus rushes by, escorted by his posse. They kick up a fierce wind, she says, but luckily she has everything she ever wanted. I'm a goner, she announces, not unhappily. Can't feel my legs. Am I even wearing shoes? I say, why? You plan on running somewhere? And we laugh. She's in their best escape-proof chair, but she's thrown her legs over the side. She slides her battered torso after them like a snake creeping backwards, whose sweatshirt might be left behind. A nurse runs to her rescue. What a nice sales girl you are, she tells the beaming nurse, who props her upright 
I help rearrange her pillows. She dies in her sleep that night. I write to hold that afternoon close to overcome five years of incessant waiting for her death. I write for better memories of my mother's mischief, deeper than her madness, and to redeem, redeem that dreary day room from the grind of its fluorescent hum. I write her last words now, asking me for a couple dollars she could give to Jesus just in case he doesn't like my face. I write to see her as that Irish child who stood faithful and defiant on her own inside the church door every week because her dirt-poor family couldn't pay enough to be allowed a seat at Mass. I write because I feared she might be right. So I tuck some cash for Jesus in the rosary the undertaker wound around her hands. I want to raise my fist with hers in glee, announcing that now my mother's dues are paid in full. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Kathy. Uh, again, reminder, Feb February 15th at the Social Justice Center, 33 Central Avenue, 7.30 p.m. Open mic for the rest of us and, and a featured poet. Poetic License Albany is a joint project of the Hudson Valley Writers Guild and Upstate Artists Guild that brings together regional poets and visual artists. For 2023, the exhibit was on display at the Fish Market in Troy and the Honest Wade Food Co-op in Albany. A call for submissions for the 2024 edition will be announced soon. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. And for regular listeners, you know that every Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, we hear a poet highlight from Tom Francis. You can find more stories at mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Cena Bazila Hickey. I'm Kill McPherson, also your engineer for tonight. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Mark Dunley, uh, Marsha Lazarus, uh, Brad Monkell, and Tom Francis. And also your two co-hosts, Cena Bazilla Hickey and Kaylin McPherson. And we want to mention Bosch for uh, giving us support on that story yes. on the, uh, the, the upcoming banned books. And uh, we appreciate you listening. Until next time.